Today in the garage, we have Daniel Goldblum and Angela Rufo. Daniel Goldblum is a criminal and regulatory defense lawyer practicing in Simcoe Chambers in Toronto. He defends people facing allegations of criminal, professional, and academic misconduct and has appeared at all levels of court in Ontario, including at the Supreme Court of Canada as an intervener for the Criminal Lawyers Association. Angela Rufo is a criminal lawyer in Toronto whose practice spans the full spectrum of criminal litigation at both trial and appellate stages. She has appeared at all levels of court in Ontario and has been junior counsel at the Supreme Court of Canada. Angela also has experience with administrative and regulatory matters as well as matters before the Ontario Review Board. Angela has volunteered at the Queen's Prison Literacy Initiative, at the Peace Builders International, and at the Ontario Justice Education Network. In today's Law Garage, Daniel and Angela discuss their start in criminal law, the ups and downs of Zoom court, and the various counsel that have influenced their careers. Whether you're driving your Mercedes 350, shredding your fender, or drafting a leave application, step into the garage, listen to the experts, and get into it. Daniel, Angela, I'm really happy to have you both join us here in the garage. We we're happy to be here. We are happy to be here. I think it's going to be fun. Um, just so you know, we are not getting into some uh, deep discussions of criminal legal topics today. We want to talk about your stories, your upbringing, how you got into the practice of criminal law. But before we go there, um, tell us about your familiarity with the Garage series, if you if you have any. Do you mean the podcast or do you mean the the actual The actual So uh, just to give you a little background, the reason for the podcast, it was the product of the pandemic because um, Justice Cooper, who used to do the Garage series, as we know, was an event that we would attend uh, as counsel um, to learn from one another, uh, got sideswiped by the pandemic, as most things have. And so uh, to accommodate... uh, his wishes of continuing with legal education, he switched to a podcast for season one. But have either of you ever attended any of the Garage series? And if so, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I I went, I remember going uh, to my first one at St. Mike's uh, and it was fantastic. It was like almost a party atmosphere. Like people were so excited to be there. There was food um, and a bunch of people got on stage and just spoke in a really accessible, practical, and helpful way about the law. And it was just like, I didn't know you could sort of have uh, a CPD event that was like that fun. That's exactly <laughs> and, what I was thinking. And also useful and also with snacks. Yeah, that, I, I mean, when, by the time it became, got the same mics, I think it really hit a good stride. And I think we really... um most of us remember where um, Brian and Eddie Greenspan sat and discussed the uh, legal ethics and their legal issues. Um, that probably drew a, a large, large crowd. What about you, Angela? Yeah, I guess I should say, so I first heard about it when I was in law school. I think now Justice Cooper came in, talked to the Osgood Crim Intensive class and mentioned this, but I literally imagined it being in a garage in my mind. And I don't know if that's actually how it started, but I totally had this image of a group of dudes sitting on folding chairs in a garage, mostly telling war stories about their cases. The first one I ever attended, I think was at the Law Society at Osgood there. 
Um, and again, same thoughts as Dan. One, there's snacks and alcohol. Like this is the best CPD event I've ever been to kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so fun and such a great opportunity for all of us criminal lawyers to get together and learn and have fun with each other. How's the pandemic uh, impacted your ability to get together with criminal lawyers? Uh, n- Sorry, I don't think I understand the question. Has it disrupted other people's lives? <laughs> uh, look, for uh, I engaged in the uh, centuries-old tradition of fleeing the city to the countryside in times of plague. So I was living with my in-laws in uh, the country outside Kingston for quite some time, twice. Uh, they're great. They're listening. Thank you very much. Um, but... It, it totally – I was just talking to Angela about this in the car on the way here. Like that um, opportunity to see people in court on a regular basis and just like get to be like, oh, I got this guy. Oh, you're not going to believe that they strip searched him for what? It's ridiculous. Like that sort of collegiality um, is just for that to go away has been really – was terrible. Like I – back now I'm, I'm in the office so I do see people around and like when you are – in another place, uh, not surrounded by by criminal defense lawyers, um, nobody wants to hear you talk about how the evidence in a child porn case should have been excluded, and it's an outrage that it wasn't. Like that's, really, no, it's and also nobody wants to hear me go on about eleven B uh, for because I really can, uh, but they they don't they don't appreciate it. So a big part for me about being a criminal lawyer is the people. Like, it's this weird, wonderful group of people who have sort of been rejected by every other facet of society, and we gather together, and we can share some of that. And to have that kind of cut off has been tough. So I just called a lot of people all the time to talk about 11B and exclusion of evidence. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Angela? Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I mean, for me... Without a doubt, the best part about practicing criminal law is the people I practice with. Um, I just think criminal defense lawyers are some of the coolest people I know, and I've really missed having everyone around. I think I really desperately clung to trying to find opportunities to see people. I was lucky. There's a few criminal defense lawyers that live fairly close to me, so Aaron, Dan, and I used to go for walks every once in a while. Um, and like I said, just desperately clinging. I think Dal and Andrew and our group at the office got together one day in Andrew's backyard, like huddling in the cold, six feet apart from each other, trying to have some sort of social experience because we really need that. Um, both the social aspect. And I think I also learned so much from being around my colleagues, the casual, like you walk back from court and talk about what's going on or mention a file at lunch. Someone has a new idea. Someone's thought about something a bit differently from you. That's so valuable. And I've really missed that over the pandemic. And I'm excited to get back to that when we can hopefully get back to normal soon. Have you, in light of these experiences, have you considered perhaps leaving the practice of criminal defense ever? Um, no, (laughs) I, I mean, my practice is a mix of stuff. It's not just criminal. It's also regulatory. And I defend uh, a lot of students who get in trouble for, um, uh, academic misconduct at universities. And sometimes I think to myself, oh, I could just do that. And that would be like more lucrative and easier. And like, it's not as stressful, 
Um, as when you're literally holding somebody's, feel like you're holding somebody's life in their hands about whether they're going to be put on the sex offender registry and thrown into jail for years. Um, but it, the criminal work is just so exciting. Like it, not being around other criminal defense lawyers, I started to notice a drift in the way I thought about cases because when you're just around like normal people doing normal things in society, you're like, oh, well, this thing that my client is accused of doing does seem quite bad, and uh, it does seem a little bit ridiculous that the Crown can't prove that he's done it because, I mean, on a balance of probabilities, he certainly has. But then you get back around criminal lawyers, and you're like, get out of here. There's no reasonable prospect of conviction. Yeah, so they <laughs> found him there, but like, come on, that evidence isn't getting in. Like that sort of sense of where <laughs> of where the lines are in criminal court is hard it's harder to maintain if you're just by yourself or surrounded by people who are dealing in their everyday work and lives with lines that are in much more reasonable places. It's nice to have a choir to preach to. Yeah, I just want people to tell me I'm right. <laughs> Angela, what about you? Has, uh, has the, the pandemic or not being able to practice in the normal course impacted your dis- decision to be a criminal lawyer in any way? I mean, I honestly do sometimes think about doing something else namely the crown's office um especially every time someone mentions the crown's pension or something or benefits (laughs) plan or something like that i think about it um and i mean there was a long time where i thought there's no way i could ever be a crown and now i sometimes think you know i could maybe do something like crown law criminal appellate work there something like that but Again, I think coming back to the same theme we've all been talking about, I can't imagine not being a part of this community. That's what keeps me here is the people. Everyone is so committed to making the law, their clients' lives better, the community better. Um, I can't imagine not being a part of that. I think it's so motivating. And fortunately, I think things are starting to get back to normal. I mean, we're doing stuff like this. I've been in the office a little bit more around everyone. And so I've got that motivation back and not planning to go to the crown's office anytime soon. Well then let's, let's ask about how do you get, how did you get your start in criminal defense, Angela? So I did Osgood, uh, the crim intensive program there. And I had a placement with Frank Adario, which is how I met Dell and Andrew and Daniel, who I used to practice with, as well as Adam Bonnie. And while I was doing that, I got to know them. And one day I was on the subway. I ran into Daniel Santoro and he asked me if I had any spare time over the summer to help him with a Supreme Court case that he was working on. I made time for that and ended up summering for them and then articling for them. And then Dell sat me down halfway through my articles and said, So we don't hire associates, but we think you should go out on your own and we'll do our best to support you. Come work within our organization. And I was like, okay, I guess. And that's kind of where it started. Daniel Santoro dropping the SCC card on the student to to lure them in. It was effective. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. Do you have time to appear before the highest court in the land? (laughs) And Daniel, how'd you get your start in criminal uh, defense? Well, I was on the subway and I saw Frank Adario. No, that's not what happened. Um, I, <laughs> I don't think where to start. Um, so I didn't think at all about 
being a lawyer, uh, I went to law school because um, I had been working as a 23-year-old opinion columnist for a newspaper, and um, that didn't seem like a good thing to do for the rest of my life. And I thought I wanted to be a politician maybe someday. And what do politicians do? They make laws. So I figured I should go to law school, find out how laws work. Uh, and if you're going to do law school, you might as well be a lawyer for a bit. It seems like a waste of money otherwise. So uh, I went, and I didn't have any idea at all that I wanted to be a criminal defense lawyer. Um, I went to U of T for law, and you know they say, to, they say to us, oh, well, do you think you're the best? And it's like, I don't know. You keep telling us that we're the best. So like, uh, maybe. And they're like, well, if you're the best, you'll go to Bay Street. And I was like, okay. Like, well, what's the best one? <laughs> I'll go there. And so that was the depth. You said you didn't want to dive too deeply into things at the top of this podcast. That's not a risk with me, okay? <laughs> uh, that's all I thought about. And I was like, oh, I'll go to there. And I ended up going to McCarthy's. Um, but my first summer uh, of law school... I worked in downtown legal services, the legal aid clinic at U of T, and my first ever case was uh, in front of Justice and I was defending an assault police case. My client, um, my client was, uh, I guess you can't see how tall I am on the podcast, so well, I'm very, very tall. Um, my, my client was about my height, so, you know, five, six and a half, same as Napoleon, and about three times my weight, and he was accused of beating up this police officer who was like six foot two and jacked. And uh, it, I won't tell you the whole story of the case unless you want me to, but um, what it came down to was this police officer, in my view, was clearly lying about how it took him like 15 minutes to wrestle a sweaty large man to the floor uh, and made up this story that made no sense. And I, I was able to demonstrate, like probably pretty clumsily, that he was full of shit. And, of course, I had justice. <laughs> so she was more inclined, I think, to agree with me on that. Uh, and it, it, it was just this crazy experience where I realized this police officer, he's like six foot two, he's jacked, he's got a gun. If I run into him at three in the morning in a dark alley and we have a little disagreement, it's going badly for me. If I run into him in a court and he's telling lies and I'm prepared, it's going badly for him. This is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. I didn't even know if I was going to win the case. It went over. Like, uh, uh, and I came back and I was like, this is amazing. I want to do this. And then I was like, oh, right. Yeah, U of T. Okay, Bay Street. <laughs> so I went I, – I summered, articled, was an associate at McCarthy's. But in my first year there, I did like – I barely met my billing target. <laughs> uh, but I did 600 hours of pro bono criminal work. Oh, they must love you over they there. They kind of sat me down and said, uh, <laughs> so, Daniel, this is a business – and you can't do 600 hours of pro bono they, criminal They give work. you the, this is business, it's not personal. Don't you know? <laughs> That's so, an important lesson in criminal law, it, though. It, yeah, You're it, also running a business. It took me a while to learn. So, uh, yeah, but then it was clear to me I couldn't have the kind of career I wanted to have there. And I took my 600 pro bono hours of uh, criminal work and I left. And you, Angela? Yeah, so I started my own practice right away, and um, it's funny, Dan and I were reflecting earlier on kind of all the ridiculous things that happen when you're first starting trying to learn how to be a criminal defense lawyer, um, the files you take on for zero payment, um, 
and how stressful it can be all the learning but figured it out um built with Dal and Andrew a trial and appeals practice and still doing that today when you mentioned the, the part about it's still a business how much of it's still a business for you Angela more than when I started fortunately I think that was a lesson that it took me quite a while to learn is I'm not here to basically try and fix my clients lives I'm their lawyer with a specific skill set that I should be compensated for um, and again yeah it took me a while to learn I think as I've grown I figured that out I do think learning how to be a business person and a lawyer at the same time was challenging um, but eventually I think you get more confident in the service you're providing um, you get a better sense of what are services worth um, and the practice changes over time I think early on I did almost exclusively legal aid or pro bono type files. And now there's more of a mix, I think, between legal aid and private work. Um, and again, yeah, just learning that I'm, I'm running a business as well as being a lawyer. Well, I mean, most of our colleagues take some legal aid files because I think it's where a lot of the interesting work still is. Absolutely. And so if you want to do interesting work, you're going to take those pay cuts and do the legal aid stuff. Plus you're giving back by contributing and taking on those files. A lot easier when everybody is assisting and doing a legal aid file than if it's only a handful of people doing legal aid file and everybody else trying to make a living. Yeah. I mean, I, it's hard that there's some people who I feel like just do legal aid because that's what they want to do. Like Bob Richardson, like he's a, he's a legal aid guy. Um, and I remember hearing like a story he told about one time when he, he was late coming home cause he had to go collect payment from a client. And I think it was a cake like, uh, but you know, if you want to, I think if you, if you want to like do a good job on cases and do totally legal aid, like you're going to be, you just got to work yourself to the bone. Like I don't have that kind of practice. Like I, I have a few legal aid files and I invariably spend way more time on them that makes any sense from a business perspective. Like I, the only question in my mind is like, how much am I going to lose about the, of the, of the time that I built? And it's, it's, I feel like it's easier for me to do that because I have other files or other areas that where I can, you know, be certain that I can make a living off of. And if I, you know, get paid for only 2000 of the $10,000 of work that I did on a legal aid file, like, I kind of know that coming in. Um, but I feel like it's gotten it's gotten a lot worse. <laughs> like even since I started, I've only been around eight years as a lawyer. And yeah, you got to fight them for everything. You know, I think an underrated award is the Sidney B. Linden Award. Big time. And, you know, Bob Richardson was a perfect example of the type of lawyer who, you know, does so much legal aid that he was actually given that award because of the the work that he does and on a legal aid budget and the outcomes. I, if I recall, he represented Cash Car. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know that's a hugely difficult case. And you know he did what he had to do, and it was a tough case, and it was in the media, and his 
fully deserving of his award. So there's a lot of respect that I think that goes to lawyers who devote that much time and effort into legal aid files. From my perspective, it still is, um, while not the bread and butter of my practice, it's where my best cases are. Yeah. I, I like my legal aid cases um, because you get to do things that, you know, other people um, can't necessarily, people who can't afford a defense get in trouble with, mostly yeah. murders. I think you're absolutely right. That's where the most interesting work is. There's no question. If you don't do legal aid work, you miss out on a ton of interesting files. I think the same goes for the appeals too. Um, I yeah. think the legal aid appeals that are super interesting when you read the court of appeal website, you can tell that these are legally aided clients getting good work f- uh, from lawyers who are just doing it because of the interest in the case really. Yeah. I think my appeals practice is close to a hundred percent legal aid on, on the criminal side. I think I've had one <laughs> that wasn't. I have the affect- one I mentioned on the way here, the $1,500 <laughs> summary conviction appeal in Peterborough in my first year of practice. Made negative money on that one. Oh, that, that, you're paying for the appeal. <laughs> exactly. Do you, ever, do you have any stories of being at the Court of Appeal, Daniel, that you want to share with us? <laughs> well, from the, the first time I was there, um, when I was, uh, I was working for Anthony Mistakalis, and he let me uh, have part of the argument. And uh, it, it is my dream to one day be have this happen to my opponent at the court of appeal uh, while I get to look on and think, (laughs) victory is mine. Um, I made a submission that I thought was an okay submission uh, to the bench. Justice (laughs) uh, (laughs) repeated my submission back to me far more eloquently than I had said it and then asked, is that your submission? And I had to say yes, because it was. And he said, well, that and $2.50 will buy you a cup of coffee. He's not wrong. <laughs> and it was just like, yeah, yeah. No, uh, I, I, I do agree. I, I am going to lose. But I, I do have another 10 minutes up here. So <laughs> I'm going to use my time. The Court of Appeal is so tough, though. It's such a losing game, generally speaking, which I think is something that also takes time to realize and not want to kill yourself about all the time is you lose a lot at the court of appeal. It's very different from trial work. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, I think our criminal justice system would be in big trouble if the court of appeal was constantly finding (laughs) errors that needed to be corrected. But that's a tough adjustment, I think, getting used to generally losing. It's funny that it's a tough adjustment because as an appellant, you you start as being a loser. Yeah. Yeah. That's what Ms. always says. Appeals are for losers. (laughs) <laughs> like the clients don't find that one that's so funny though no i know <laughs> <laughs> uh, angela do you have any um early memories of practice of law that that you're nostalgic about i mean i think all of meeting everyone for sure i remember set date court this sounds like so basic but yeah set date court early on And don't get me wrong, I'm glad that we don't have to run around doing this all the time anymore, but I used to love in Toronto 
which was local, running around, seeing all my friends, people I hadn't seen since law school, you know, hugging the crowns and my clients wondering what was going on. (laughs) Why was I doing that? Um, Yeah, that was great. Uh, I definitely look back on the early set date experience fairly fondly. That was also the chance to see other people who were new and freaking out just as much as I was, which was also pretty helpful. Um, so I do miss that. I do not miss running around to Brampton, Oshawa, Milton, Barrie, maybe all in one day. Glad we don't have to do that anymore. Do you prefer or do you think that this, um, you know, a virtual set day court is a model that um, we should continue on going forward? Absolutely. I do think it can pose challenges, particularly for new calls who are trying to build a business. I definitely got a lot of work early on just running around to all the different courthouses for other lawyers. Again, that's how I met a lot of lawyers. Um, So I do think it can pose challenges, particularly for the new calls. But overall, I think it improves access to justice. Um, It really just makes sense. There's no need to be doing that in person, I think. One thing I was reflecting on is like, yeah, it's way better for the lawyers. Um, but for people who are like basically homeless and don't have a phone, like I, I just don't know what they're doing. If they don't have a lawyer and they don't have a phone, they don't have a computer um, and they got to go somewhere. Like you can imagine if they had to, if somebody has to log into a Zoom court or call in and they have to go to someone and say, hey, can I use your computer or phone? Oh, for how long? Oh, well, I'm going to be in court. So it could be from 9 a.m. until 4 p.m. I, I don't know. I'm just going to need to be on your computer all day. Like, I don't know. I mean, not that it was easy to, like, show up at the courthouse either. Um, but I think there are, the general rule seems to be we change things in the legal system so that they benefit first the judges and the crowns. And then maybe if they benefit the defense, we'll also do it. But if it's to benefit the people who are accused, that's like, come on, there are lawyers here. Like, we're all doing our jobs. You're kind of getting in the way of this determination of what's going to happen to your life from an access to justice perspective though. How do you, so how do you think uh, it benefits? Oh, I'm just complaining. Like, <laughs> no, I'm just asking either of you uh, because Angela said there's, I mean, I, I, I kind of understand that position, the access to justice position, but then on the other hand, I, I sit there and I think, well, it's basically taking away the free work that the lawyers used to do. It- <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but also like people like most people have phones, you know, like right. uh, all but the most marginal have a phone and if you can like if you had to access a government service and it's like, "Oh, you have to go to 2201 Finch all for the day or you can be on your computer at home." Like, I don't know anybody who would who would say, "No, I want to go to 2201 Finch for the day." So, I also think it saves that cost that might get built into legal fees like you know when you're looking at what you're going to need for a case you're thinking about you're going to need to do x number of administrative appearances in y location and now we don't need to worry about that which i think can kind of flow back to the clients yeah that's what i was thinking about but at the same time it's it's, isn't it crazy that we had to do that to begin with? Oh, absolutely. The other day I was doing a virtual appearance in Kitchener and I waited for an hour and a half in front of the computer, which is fine. I can, you know, answer emails, do other stuff, did my two minute spiel. And then afterwards thought, 
there was a time where I would have driven to Kitchener, right. waited around in Kitchener, and then I would have drove home. Right. That's wild to me that we used to practice like that. Oh, it's, I know. And when I started, um, you know, there was a, a disclosure was given to us in a format of paper. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. No, I'm sorry. And so they used to hand it to you. And so if you had multiple matters to deal with, you would sit and read the paper disclosure and make notes on it while you waited for your other matters. But then they switched it to discs. So now really the time you're there, you can't look at paper anymore. So you're just sitting there (laughs) holding a disc unless you brought your computer to play at the disc. Scrolling on your phone. But the, but the, the, the crazy thing, like, like we always think about the example in the justice system showing how outdated the technology is. It's like, we still used fax machines. And everyone's like, fax machines, that's crazy. But the really crazy thing is like when I tell people, oh, before the pandemic, somebody would have to hand me a DVD to provide files to someone. And they're like, they're like no, you're not serious. I'm like, yeah. Somebody, it was somebody's job to put a bunch of DVDs on a push cart and they push the cart down the hall into a room. And then when it's my turn to get to stand up, somebody, while they're talking to a different person says, I'm providing this DVD to, to Dan. He can have it now. So you can stop complaining about not having the DVD. Like it's still, it's so crazy. I'm so glad that we have like, you know, evidence.com or whatever or disclosure hub. Like it's insane. We didn't have those things before. I always think about when we're talking about the backwards technology, the information, the physical piece of paper, piece of paper yeah. that tracks everything, which we still haven't really moved away from. I mean, that was such a holdup, I feel like, early on in the pandemic to be able to do stuff electronically. It was like, well, the information yeah. is in the courthouse. But you also tell people that and you're like, you're like, oh, so, hey, you want to know something crazy? If they forget to bring a certain piece of paper to the court, maybe they're not allowed to prosecute you anymore. It's like, what are you talking about? You know, and that happened to me last week. And um, amazing. in a virtual court, my student calls me and says, they don't have the information. And I said, physically or electronically or what? She's like, nothing. Yeah. And I was trying to explain it to my 23-year-old client. And she just didn't understand. What do you mean they don't have this document? Can't they just like email it or yeah. send it over? <laughs> but, no, they need the first one. I, the said, I, don't, on. I said, to be honest with you, that's a good question. <laughs> but for whatever reason, they don't have it. And guess what? You're free to go. Yeah. Unless a cop comes and knocks on your door and subpoenas you again, you're free to go. Yeah. And she's like, wow, great. Good work. I'm like, no problem. (laughs) I wish I'd had that experience. I saw that happen in court and I can't remember. It was some junior lawyer had um, this experience, yeah, where the information was missing and they were asking more senior lawyers what to do. And the lawyer was like, just go. Just leave. Don't say anything. Confirm that it's not there. Like, yeah, there are different ways you could deal with it. But like you can say on the record, I'm here for this matter. No, it's not here. Okay, thank you. And then you order the transcript of that appearance. But like the reporter will be like, okay, which matter was this for? It's like, Mm-mm, it's not going to be listed under a matter. It's probably at this time of day on the recording. Well, sometimes what I would do is um, I, if I had my clients, for instance, they're undertaking or something, I'd get the clerk to sign the undertaking, oh, date yeah, yeah. it, and time it. If you're there That's in person. Scary. Yeah, well, in the old days. Yeah, when I was there in person, they would sign things. Um, I just want, on this issue of, you know, funny things that happen in court, do you have any stories you want to <laughs> share with us about humorous things that might have happened during your 
career to date? Do you, do you want me to go first or do you want to share your humorous story? I mean, I can share <laughs> a hopefully humorous but also very embarrassing story about my own experience in court. And it's like a pandemic-related thing. So Andrew Fergueli and I had the experience. We were one of the very few jury trials that went ahead in the fall. And we were the first one that went ahead in Hamilton. And so getting used to the setup of the courtroom during a pandemic and the restrictions on where you can walk and all of this is something that I didn't really appreciate until I was in it. And I remember one of the first crosses I'm doing in this trial, I walk up to the lectern and go to take the mask off because once we're in our specific spot, then we're allowed to do that gets caught on my earring. So I'm like fiddling in front of the jury with this mask. Eventually the earring back goes flying off, got the mask (laughs) off, go to start my cross. And I'm doing at a certain point, you know, the standard trying to pin them down into testimony that they gave at the prelim. And I ask about the prelim and the witness has no recollection of ever testifying at the prelim. (laughs) And I was prepared for, I don't remember this answer. I had like all the references. I wasn't prepared for admittedly, no, I didn't testify at a prelim. So then I'm trying to think, okay, how am I going to get them to remember this? And I'm like, okay, I'm going to show them the transcript of the trial, the physical transcript of the trial and the physical transcript of um, the prelim and there had been this was a second trial so there was a previous trial transcript so I go to get those two walk over to the witness start walking forget the mask judge is like Ms. Rufo your mask walk back go to put the mask on get to the witness standing too close to the witness get in trouble for that eventually the witness does remember she did testify at a prelim go back to the lectern. I've got my mask on now. Go to take the mask off again. Again, caught on the earring. (laughs) Earrings are going flying off. I eventually made it through the cross. I think I got everything I needed, but it was a very rough start. Fortunately, I feel like I wasn't the only one kind of struggling. Counsel was also getting in trouble throughout the trial for standing too close to the jury, standing too close to a witness outside of our zone. But... Yeah, it was not fun. Not fun. You know, with all the plexiglass and all of the rules, and then some judges say you can take your mask off now, and other judges say I prefer you don't. And it's 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 different. It's difficult. It's difficult to advocate in those circumstances. Also, I can't question somebody sitting down. I'm sorry. Oh, I know. I need to stand up. I'm not one of these American prosecutors when you watch uh, court TV. They're sitting there drinking their coffee out of their coffee mug, their travel coffee mugs, and questioning somebody. I need to be up on my feet, you know? Even making submissions, I feel like I want to be on my feet. Has anybody ever stood up during a Zoom hearing to make submissions? I did not stand up, (laughs) but one time I was about to do a plea over Zoom, and the clerk asked me and my client to rise at the beginning of the court. So we awkwardly hovered together <laughs> over the chair, still in the screen before we were told that we could see. I've, I've stood up during a Zoom hearing. I've set my computer up I'm taller so I could stand up because I just didn't feel comfortable cross-examining this particular officer sitting down and I got, had to get into a zone. I was in, in April, right before the, the third wave really kicked off. I was doing uh, a discussion 
disclosure motion out in Oshawa in the OCJ. And it was my first time in a, it's actually, that's my only time in a courthouse during the pandemic. Everything else has been virtual. And I was so excited to be there. I like, I said to the court reporter, I'm like, it's so great being here. Like, like it's electric. Don't you think? And she looks at me like, the f- is wrong with you this is my government job like <laughs> but i was there and like i was wearing a, a mask and i had to sit and it just every fiber of my being was like i'm being disrespectful to the judge i'm not being a persuasive advocate by sitting here um yeah it's it's there, there's a there's a there's a theater to all of it and when you change the rules of theater it really it just feels wrong and when it's on zoom it's even worse i find yeah yeah you can't I didn't realize how bad it was on Zoom until I did one in person after having done all of them on Zoom. That really brought it into focus for me because, like, you really know if somebody thinks you're full of shit in person. In Zoom, it's a little harder to tell. In Zoom, it's like, oh, they might just, like, have some, like, really good emails um, that they're reading instead of listening to me. Right. You don't know what what the your audience is looking at. You have no idea if they're looking at you, if they're looking at your client, if they're looking at something else playing solitaire what you don't know what's going on they, and they tell you they tell you so much with their their body language and like where they're looking in the court because you can't tell who, if there are multiple people in front of the judge on zoom you don't know who they're looking at because they're all like you, they may only be able to see one of you at a time but like a judge can't look over at the other side and roll their eyes at them on zoom right, right? like is so much it just looks like an eye roll at everyone yeah everyone you're like no you're uh, your honor just to clarify you're rolling your eyes at uh, my my learned friend right not at me um so <laughs> yeah it's it's so it's so much better being in there it's like it's so exciting yeah the, especially trial work i mean i find trial work really exciting because you never really know what's going to happen until you're in there and yeah. you walk the halls and you walk the halls and see if a witness is going to show up or all this weird stuff that's happening a lot of people find anxiety provoking, but I find that that triggers the excitement of the practice. Yeah. Even at the appellate level, I find it's better in person. And I mean, I can appreciate why it's more important for trials, but I find it's just so much easier to engage with the panel when you're there and there's not just like all these heads and you're trying to look for a cue that they're either on board more likely not on board with right. what you're saying, <laughs> trying to interrupt you. I was going to ask, I was going to ask because I haven't done any appellate work in a long time and I haven't done any by Zoom. So I'm just wondering if, if it was a little bit different by Zoom because a lot of appellate lawyers have been advocating, I've noticed in social media about how, you know, Zoom is great for appeals and great for Supreme Court of Canada and so on. And I'm wondering if that's something that you guys can speak to. And Angela does a lot more appeals than I do. I don't think that's true. Um, I mean, I do think it opens up a lot more opportunities for more lawyers to do appeals. I think the appellate bar tends to be concentrated in Toronto because that's where the court of appeal is. And so this, I think, makes it more feasible for lawyers outside of Toronto to do appeals. And similarly, at the Supreme Court of Canada now, like you can appear there from wherever in Canada. And I think, I think that's a good thing. I, like I said, personally would much prefer to be there in person. Like I said, I think it makes for better engagement. And I think the best submissions to the court are when it's conversational and 
you can you can read their cues and you can tell that justice so-and-so is really struggling with something you're saying and is trying to cut in to ask you a question i found over zoom generally they're a lot quieter and i find i find that much harder to make submissions i much prefer when the court has questions i understand what where they're struggling and what they need help with and what i need to focus on Um, i think it's a lot harder over zoom So, so much of conversation is knowing when to talk and when not to talk and we give each other so many uh, nonverbal cues of like, okay, I'm, I'm going to stop talking in a second and it's going to be your turn. Or like, oh, no, I do, I, I do want to hear more from you. Or like, shut the fuck up. Um, and it, so being in person is better. But that said, I did a summary conviction appeal uh, in front of Justice and it was bifurcated. So we did the um, uh, conviction appeal in person. And then the, the sentence appeal, which was also a constitutional challenge, was over Zoom. So I got like, it was like a perfect controlled experiment because it was all the same players and the same case. Um, and I, <laughs> I lost the first one and I won the second one. So maybe I am all in favor of Zoom. But I, I did find that with at least with one judge, I think that's probably a lot easier than if you have a panel of three because um, you're only dealing with one person at a time. So it, I don't know, it, it worked uh, and I didn't feel at the end of it uh, that wasn't as good as it could have been. But that was before I then went to court in person. I was like, oh, my God, this is so much better than Zoom. So, uh, yeah, also people like not flying to Ottawa, I guess, because it costs money. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else feels this way, but I find it a lot harder to stay focused on mm. Zoom. Um, I find it a lot easier to absorb when I'm in person. I feel like on Zoom often I can tell I'm kind of glazing over and I'm like, you're still in this appeal. (laughs) Listen to what the crown's saying. Well, I mean, Zoom fatigue is something. And and screen, staring at a screen is exhausting. By the end of the day, you feel exhausted when you're on a Zoom trial. Because I think a lot of people don't realize how uh, exhausting, a tr- especially a trial or any hearing is. You're you're actually tense, like your body's tense. You're focused. You're trying to think and you're trying to do things. And then you add this element of staring at a screen the entire day, um, that adds to this level of fatigue and kind of affects your concentration from time to time. That you need to break from there. And then you have all these other distractions. Whereas in court, I feel I look in different directions and I can take a. a five second or 10 seconds zone out and not worry because I know the judge is focused on the crown right now, but on zoom, you don't know again where the judge is looking and and you don't know if they're looking at you or they're looking at something else. So it's kind of hard for you to just turn your attention off without being kind of on the, on, on this camera staring at you. It's also just that it's a mediated experience. Like it's happening through something. Um, and you're worried about, Oh my like it's not that hard to turn your mute on and off, but it's just like another thing you got to worry about. This connection issues, like it's I you can know. see yourself. Yeah, you can see yourself, which for I me really is perfect because like oh. I just like, oh god, you're a beautiful man. Um, yeah, no, it's it, it it it's not like a regular human interaction. And like if you're somebody who gets energized by like other people, if you don't hate other people. It's nice to be around them. Even if you do, it's like nice to have something to hate, you know? I also find I'd much prefer my client be there with me, which depending on your setup, and I think this changed throughout the pandemic. I think we all, you know, figured out different ways of doing things. But 
not having the client there to me is is so stressful. Everything that I've done, I mean, barring appeals where the clients normally aren't there, but anything else, I've wanted my client at the office with me. Yeah, because it's hard not being able to like say, hold on a minute, I got to get instructions. Wait, so, okay, so you didn't stab her? No, okay, I didn't think so. All right, no, no objection, Your Honor. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so what still excites you uh, about the practice of criminal law, Daniel? Um, the people are still exciting. <laughs> uh, but the, the, the really exciting thing about criminal law is that people are in, the people you're helping are in a lot of trouble. Like, without exception. It's just how much trouble, how bad really is it? And you get to use your expertise and intelligence to think, how do I get them out of this thing that at first blush, any normal person is going to look at and be like, you can't get out of that. Like, like it's like when you explain to people in impaired driving cases, well, no, no, no. The fact that you were driving and drunk doesn't mean you're going to get convicted of driving drunk. Like, who, who would think <laughs> such a thing? Right? So, so finding, figuring that out and also helping people get out of that system is still a thrill. And also, like, I don't know. I have this personality disorder where I really like 11B, right? And, like, <laughs> <laughs> thinking about, like, those kinds, like, other other conceptual things in criminal law, I'm kind of like, oh, like, whatever. But this one, I'm like, ah, oh, the delay test. This, for some reason, will excite me. So the issues, the ideas, and getting getting people out of trouble. It's like a puzzle, and you're trying to solve it. Yeah. and And one of the really fun things about it is, like, if you're doing civil stuff, like almost everything settles because it's almost always an irrational decision to spend money on lawyers over who should get more money after a trial. Um, but when you're dealing with, like in criminal law, because you have the reasonable doubt standard, it just really opens things up to argue crazy stuff that you can never argue in a balance of probabilities setting. Um, and it still shocks me that because of something I said somebody else can walk out of jail. Like, I still, it's, I mean, I'm not the judge, but, like, it's a tremendous power. Um, and it's, like, it's, I don't know. I, I, I'm sappy, but it's just, like, a privilege to get to be a, a part of that and to use all of your energy and skills to, like, get somebody who is widely perceived as a scoundrel their liberty back. It's amazing. Like, I can't believe we get paid to do it. We don't get paid enough, obviously. But, you know, it's great. But the flip side to that is um, how do we cope with the times where that the person walks into jail and the person loses? We blame the trial judge. <laughs> Angela? Again, I think having... <laughs> I mean, of course. We call Angela and Angela does the appeal. What's the... <laughs> I mean, I, that's where I think our community is so important, too. I mean, I remember a few years ago, I juniored on a homicide, on a murder trial, and we lost. And that was, I think, one of the first, like, big losses where there were serious consequences for the client I'd experienced. And I was devastated. Like, I have never felt so intensely like I had failed someone in my mind my client was going to jail because of me it was my fault that's why this was happening um and that was really hard short term i 
spent a whole weekend watching Fast and the Furious movies and cuddling with my dog. Um, Fast and the Furious is an odd choice, but go on. Because there were lots of them. Like, it could take up the whole weekend. Oh, okay. Now I understand. (laughs) Um, It feels like that perfect balance between, like, being enough going on that you are distracted from exactly. your horrible feelings, but not so much that you have to pay attention to follow the plot. Exactly. I can just sit there and wallow yeah. for oh, per- two days. Perfect wallowing franchise. Exactly. <laughs> so glad there's another one to add to the mix for my next loss. Um, but no, long term, that's where I think having this community is so important. I mean, I, again, like I said, I felt like a failure. I think I replayed every minute of that trial in my head thinking, why didn't I object to this? Why did I ask that question? Why didn't we do this kind of thing? And talking about that with my colleagues through that, eventually I realized this isn't my fault. My client's not going to jail for the rest of their life because of me. And, and I don't know that I would have gotten to that point without the, the wisdom and the support of particularly Dal and Andrew. They had to listen to me talk about this trial for years. Um, but I don't know that I would have gotten there without them, without the people to talk to. Anthony Mustaclis used to tell me whenever he was stressing about a case when he was a junior defense lawyer, his mother would say to him, what are you so worried about? You didn't do anything wrong. All said and done. <laughs> what lawyer do you feel privileged to have seen litigate before the end of their career? Or alternatively, what lawyer do you wish you had the opportunity to see litigate? I'll go with uh, Angela first. Sure, yeah. I feel very privileged to have seen now Madam Justice Jill Presser in action before she was appointed. She was actually the first woman I ever saw at the Court of Appeal. And I remember just watching her. She's so eloquent, so articulate, so clear, so calm. Um, And I remember just looking at her thinking, that's who I want to be when I grow up. And I don't think I realized it at the time, but I was recently reflecting on that since she was recently appointed. And I think it was so important for me to see a woman in that space, like such a formidable advocate who was also a woman. I think the appellate bar in particular still tends to be a lot of men. And I mean, I've benefited so much from watching all of my colleagues at the Court of Appeal and women. But I think there was something about seeing a woman in there and that role that was really important for me when I was starting out to see there is a space for me there. I'm going to say I'm going to say a bunch of people. I'm not I'm going to deviate from my prepared remarks. It's okay, I can edit everything. <laughs> um I so Jen Traherne, who is now a crown, it pains me to say. Um I feel so sad. I know. Oh. Uh <laughs> not not an insult. Uh so Jen was doing a uh, an intervention for the CLA in the Superior Court. Um, on an open court principle issue. And she got me to junior for her on it. And I watched her and Megan Savard make submissions to Justice Campbell. And I was just like, I, it, was, it was the first time that I was sort of, I think, in court for sort of lengthy submissions on a um, complex, like policy-driven legal issue 
uh, with other counsel where I got to just like watch the whole arguments having been involved in the case and watching both of them. It's just like, I, I was just blown away by like how persuasive they were. There was not a missed word. It was, um, forceful, authoritative and, uh, plain spoken. It was just like, it was, it was, it seemed to be the simplest way you could express each of the ideas they were trying to express uh, in a way that was just so confident. And I was just like, oh, God, how I want to be able to do that. That is like what I want to figure out how to do. Um, that was like four years ago. And then I was watching. Then the other one I would mention is now Justice Phil Campbell. I was watching his submissions. Uh, I think it was on, was he on Essegire? Um, I don't, I don't remember, but he was, it was on zoom for a Supreme court and I was watching him and it was just like, it was just the same to be able to speak with that level of authority, that clear mastery of the law explained in a way that doesn't feel like you're trying to be fancy. Um, it, it just, it's one of those things that it sort of, it almost makes you jealous and like angry watching it. Cause you're like, that is you're watching somebody sort of at the peak of the art um, and thinking like, well, how come I'm not Phil Kim? I've been practicing eight years and how come, how come I'm not as good as the best guy at this? Um, yeah. Those, those, the people who I've seen litigate, who I was just blown away by. Um, can I, can I tell one more? The floor, you're, edit the it floor out. Is you're yours. Edit it out. The floor is yours, <laughs> Mr. Goldblum. Okay. This is why I wrote this one. Down. No, but I wanted to, I wanted to talk about, Anthony Mustakalis, um, because I just, I learned so much about dealing with, uh, crowns, uh, from him, because I feel like there are a lot of, there are a lot of defense lawyers who are kind of like dump trucks who the crowns love because they come in, they clear the lists, they're very pleasant and they get good deals for their clients, you know, whether they're legally guilty or not. And there are other defense lawyers who are you know, absolutely devastating forensic advocates who are excellent at their jobs, who all the crowns despise. And then there is this section, this, this group of lawyers who are incredibly good at what they do, unbelievable advocates who have great relationships with the crown. And it's like figuring out where that line is. And that, that that's like, when I worked for Mystaculous, every, every meeting I had with the crown, I would start like, Oh, I'm Anthony Mustakalis associate. Like, oh, Anthony. Oh, yeah, he's the best. Like whatever. Like it was just the, those relationships that he had with people. And when you know a crown on a file was not getting back to us or like taking weird positions, he would like pick up the phone and call them. And be like, is everything okay? Like this doesn't seem you know doesn't seem like you. Like what's going on? And I'd be like, oh, like well, my mother's in the hospital or whatever it was. And he just got these unbelievable deals for people to 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 walk that line of maintaining those relationships with other people in the system while also recognizing that your job is to get people out of this system. Your job is not to like work with the crown to achieve a just punishment for your client. Um, that whole approach to it, uh, all infused with like, you better understand the jurisdictional basis for every single thing you're doing and be up on the law. Like, uh, yeah, he, I, I think I owe, much of uh, whatever kind of a good lawyer I am is is because of him. Daniel Goldblum and Angela Rufo 
I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come to the Law Garage and share your experience with our listeners. Continuing legal education can take various forms, and I believe there's something to gain just from talking to our colleagues, which is something that I've really missed throughout this pandemic. Is there anything you would like to plug before we uh, end for today, guys? I I thought of something. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, This is for junior counsel. This is a hard job, and there's a lot of things that you don't know how to do. And one of the great things about the criminal defense bar is that you can call senior people and ask for help. I do it all the time, um, and I'm just starting now to get to the point, I feel like, where people who are just starting out, um, I can answer. I know a lot of things. I've learned a lot of things in the last eight years. Not everything there is to learn, but enough that I can help somebody who's starting. And it's it can be an isolating business, especially with the pandemic. Please call senior members. If you're a very junior, call me <laughs> if you want, uh, uh, 416-596-2865 um goldblumlaw.ca but please reach out for help because it's what we do is really important and it's hard and getting help makes you a better lawyer i think there's actually three people you need to call eric neubauer and i have had this conversation all the time you need to call someone who's your level of call especially i think if you're junior they will overthink whatever problem you're having with you and together you can try and come up with a solution then when you and your peer get stuck, you want to call someone who I think is about five years ahead of you or so, who has a bit more experience than you, um, but still has, you know, the time and understands what you're going through to talk through it with you. Then after that, you want to call experienced counsel to basically give you the okay that where you're at is is the right path or let you know if you're on the wrong path. Um But I do think when you're calling other lawyers to talk things through, you want to try your best to come up with a solution ahead of time. Absolutely. I think that's so important for your own learning, but also to be respectful of other people's time, I think, too. Where can we find you, Angela? Uh, You can get me by email, my last name, R-U-F-F-O at DFRlitigation.com or just look on our website, DFRlitigation.com. Yeah, email me too, dg at goldbloomlaw.ca. It's my initials, and then gold like a metal, bloom like a flower, law like what I do, .ca. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Law Garage podcast. If you're new to the podcast, please check out Season 1 and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Law Garage. Our production crew includes executive producer Jason Cooper, and associate producers Christina Zdow and Remy Sansomal. The Law Garage is a J Mike podcast production.